0: One million acres of cropland damaged in the Midwest after a cyclone storm. Half a million cattle lost to devastating rains in Australia. Seventy percent of the Earth's productive topsoil gone. Our food system is headed toward a global crisis at the hands of a rapidly changing climate. And with the predictions of another two billion people living on the planet by 2050 we are faced with one question. How can an industry already hit so hard by climate change continue to meet the demands of a growing population? Agriculture is on the front line of a climate change battle, but it is also one of the reasons why we find ourselves here. The agriculture, forestry, and other land use sector accounts for 24% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Agriculture represents the majority of these emissions, but the source isn't carbon dioxide. Methane and nitrous oxide are responsible for 82% of emissions. And while these gases don't stay in the atmosphere as long as carbon dioxide, they are significantly more potent in terms of global warming potential. What's driving these emissions and which technologies hold the most promise to sustainably secure our food future? Cows are a significant source of methane which is released as a result of enteric fermentation and long-term manure storage. Enteric fermentation happens within the digestive tract, where microbes break down food and release methane in the process. How much methane is released depends on diet, which is largely a mixture of grass, hay, and corn. Food additives, probiotics, and supplements could hold the answer to holding gassy cows at bay. For example, scientists at UC Davis are exploring seaweed as a feed additive, and initial measurements suggest a significant reduction in dairy cow emissions. Cow manure would also benefit from a change in diet. For centuries, farmers have been storing manure to apply as fertilizer on feed crop fields. But when stored, Methane is released through anaerobic decomposition of organic matter. Anaerobic digesters hold promise, capturing the methane and using it as an energy source for heat or electricity, replacing natural gas. EPA estimates are that as much as 85% of methane emissions could be eliminated with the use of digesters. Yet most farmers don't have the access to capital needed to deploy digesters. Dominion Power in Virginia hopes to address this challenge in partnership with Smithfield. Several biogas recovery and energy distribution projects are underway that seek to remove the financial barrier for the farmer. I spoke with Dominion's Ryan Childress about the idea behind the new venture, called Align Renewable Natural Gas.
1: When you look at the system itself, um, Align RNG owns everything from the outlet of the digester uh, through the gas upgrading unit to the interconnect with the pipeline. The farmer actually invests their own capital, owns the digester itself, and thus is responsible for the maintenance there too. And so in a lot of cases, the farmers are going out to a bank and financing that. So uh, the contract that they get with the line RNG and with Smithfield for their animals provides uh, collateral against that loan, which then provides them the ability to get paid for the energy they produce at their farm. What we've done is uh, designed a business model that pays the farmer for the energy they produce. So, whereas previously they had a waste product that was a liability for them, now it provides equity and uh, and a vehicle for them to uh, take something, uh, create a new revenue stream that helps their families a- a- a be more successful.
0: Maybe the answer is simply eat less meat. The veggie burger is not new, but until now, was seen as more novelty than mainstream. But that's changing. Burger King recently announced it would start piloting a vegan version of its popular Whopper. The Impossible Whopper uses a soy-based burger created by Impossible Foods, a company started in 2011 with one mission, to reduce environmental impact by replacing animals in the food chain with plants. Still not convinced it's meat? What if you could eat meat without eating the cow? That's the idea behind an emerging alternative, clean meat. Scientists are taking blood samples and creating cell lines to produce meat patties, leaving the cow in the pasture. Early reviews on taste are promising, but the $300,000 price tag means you won't see this in restaurants anytime soon. The clean meat revolution isn't just happening with cows. Companies are exploring alternatives for other proteins like chicken and fish. Once they get the flavor profile and consistency right, will it matter what's in the patty? Tyson Foods, an investor in San Francisco-based clean meat company Memphis Meats, is betting that it won't. Another source of significant emissions is soil. The culprit? Fertilizer. In the 1900s, the discovery of the Haber-Bosch process led to mass production of fertilizer, which industrialized crop production. The process artificially fixes nitrogen and combines it with hydrogen to produce ammonia, which is the base ingredient of fertilizers used around the world today. When applied purposely, fertilizer can be very effective. But more often than not, over-application occurs and much of the nitrogen is lost to the environment. UVA professor and contributing author to the fourth IPCC report on climate change, James Galloway, explains what happens when fertilizer is used in farming.
2: One of the challenges of using nitrogen fertilizer is that there are so many ways it can get into the environment. It could be leached from the soil to the groundwater, where it can contaminate drinking water, or It can be leached from the soil into surface waters and then be transported to coastal systems to contribute to eutrophication, also known as dead zones. Also, it can be released to the atmosphere as nitric oxide, where it contributes to smog, ozone, and acid deposition. Or it can be released to the atmosphere as ammonia, which causes inadvertent fertilization of natural ecosystems via atmospheric deposition. Or it can be released to the atmosphere as nitrous oxide which contributes to the greenhouse effect while it's in the lower atmosphere and to ozone depletion in the stratosphere. A unique and troublesome aspect of nitrogen is that a single atom released to the environment from food production can contribute to all of those effects as nitrogen travels through the environment. It's a phenomenon known as the nitrogen cascade. However, given that nitrogen is critical for food production, the global objective should be to optimize nitrogen use in food production and minimize the consequences on the environment and the people that live in it.
0: The solution to tackling the migrating nitrogen problem lies in precision agriculture. Effective fertilizer application follows what's known as the four R's, right source, right rate, right time, and right place. Scientists are looking at ways we can ensure these conditions are met in the field. For example, nitrification inhibitors added to the formula can delay the transformation of ammonium to nitrate to align with plant readiness. Micromanaging crop health on the individual plant level and applying only the amount of nutrients and water as needed has the potential to reduce fertilizer use, boosting productivity, while reducing environmental impact. Managing crops at this level requires sophistication not yet seen in this industry. As agriculture moves into the digital age, companies like Microsoft and IBM are capitalizing on the opportunity to bring IoT and AI solutions to farmers. Yet for some farmers that don't have access to these technologies, best practices are critical. For example, planting cover crops between main cash crop plantings can extract excess nitrogen not used by the previous plants and help to sequester carbon. These best practices can go a long way to reducing impact, especially in developing countries, many of which face challenges of rapidly growing populations, vulnerability to natural disasters, and food security. What if you could avoid using soil altogether? Indoor vertical farming is a promising new approach that allows growers to tightly control climate conditions, producing high yields while using limited resources. Hydroponics, the most popular technique deployed in indoor farming, uses water as the medium often with the addition of soil-free options such as peat moss and coconut husks. To learn more about vertical farming, I visited Beanstalk Farms in Northern Virginia and talked with owners Michael and Jack Ross, alumni of UVA's iLab.
3: So the basic idea behind a vertical farm is growing inside of a controlled environment where we can guarantee that the plant that is being grown has all of the resources that it needs to grow. We supply artificial light that is carefully tuned to the plants we grow. We... Dope the air with the CO2 that the plants need. Um, And then we provide all of the nutrients that produce needs through the the water that we irrigate with. So vertical farms, by the most part, run using hydroponics. That's what we use at Beanstalk. And we can supply specifically the level of nutrients that plants need to grow. Um, And we do that through an array of shelves where water will flood each shelf on a schedule, and lights will sit above the plants uh, in that shelf. Um, It allows us to be much more uh, productive, given a a square foot on the floor, as we grow in in many, many layers. Um, And that productivity allows us to generate a good bit more revenue, um, which is really what allows us to locate much closer to consumers in, uh, in cities.
0: Indoor vertical farms are essentially zero-carbon operations by design. From food safety and quality to water savings, there are many benefits.
4: The biggest benefit by far is the fact that we're able to produce healthy and nutritious food locally. So you're no longer transporting goods um, across country, uh, across the country, or across you know, borders, um, it's, it's produced for that local community. So that means that the food is fresher, which means it's also more nutritious. Um, we can do really, really cool things where we can produce crops specific to a local taste or local demand means there's less food waste. Um, and then of course there's, you know, the, the hydroponic benefits, which, um, we, we do inherit and that's the water savings. It's the fact that we don't use any chemicals or pesticides, um, because they're grown in clean controlled environments. Um, and then, you know, the, the last thing I'd like to really mention is that it's incredibly consistent. So, again, it's always the perfect climate in our facilities. We're, we're entirely indoors, so it can be raining or cloudy or storming outside, um, and, and the crops are still going to be grown at the same rate to the same, you know, high standard, um, and that's just not something you can do outside.
0: But vertical farming, while promising, does face challenges. In a survey conducted by Agrilist, Only 51% of farmers reported a profit, and the average age of profitable farms is seven years. High capital, labor, and lighting costs are some of the reasons why vertical farms struggle. Beanstalk applies a systems approach to indoor farming that takes these costs into consideration.
4: When it comes to uh, labor, we've, we've built some machinery to automate a lot of the really mundane tasks um and it's not just about cost savings with automation it's also about increasing consistency increasing food safety um the less someone's in contact with plants the the more safe that food will be the more consistent it'll be and that's what we're promising customers you're going to get the freshest stuff and it's going to be super consistent um and it won't change day to day week to week year to year um and so that that obviously did help with costs a lot um and then it's being able to use materials so growing materials it's being able to use um, different lighting and, and, and different heating and cooling methods, um, that also really, really drive the cost down. Um, one of the things that, you know, you certainly saw is how dense our farm is. Um, so we're able to utilize our heating and cooling much more efficiently than, you know, let's say a greenhouse, uh, would, would, where we actually get multiple layers of crops inside of a, a cubic foot.
0: Agriculture hasn't seen much innovation in the last 100 years. Today, the industry faces the harsh reality that significant shifts in temperature, weather patterns, water accessibility, and pest populations are putting stress on global food production. Agriculture is in the best position to substantially impact mitigation and benefit directly from those efforts. But to decarbonize by 2060, we need to think differently about how we produce, distribute, and consume food. The 2015 Paris Climate Accord calls for the limiting of global warming to no more than two degrees Celsius from pre-industrial levels. This will require near total decarbonization of global economic activity by 2060. Reducing emissions in the agriculture sector will be critical to meeting this goal. What does a sustainable and productive food future look like? What technologies and policies have the most potential to accelerate disruption and replace carbon-intensive farming practices? These are the questions that the Business Innovation and Climate Change Initiative team at UVA Darden's Batten Institute for Entrepreneurship and Innovation are trying to answer in a new report titled, Path to 2060 decarbonizing the agriculture industry. The report explores the impact of current livestock and soil management practices and discusses the technologies and levers needed to decarbonize them. Here with me to discuss these topics further is Mike Lennox, UVA Darden School of Business Professor, Senior Associate Dean, and Chief Strategy Officer. Thanks for joining us, Mike
1: very excited to be here.
0: Let's start with cows. Livestock is the largest source of greenhouse gases in this industry, and there seems to be movement underway toward alternative proteins. Consumer demand is a big driver of change in this industry, and we've seen this happen around issues like antibiotics, where companies like Purdue and others have moved away from herd treatment in response to consumer demand for antibiotic-free meat. In your book, Can Business Save the Earth? You talk about this important stakeholder in driving change. How might consumers influence this industry?
1: Well, I mean, clearly, you know, the customer is king and uh, consumers have a huge impact, uh, obviously, on the market. The, The challenge, of course, is what can create a grand awakening of consumer sentiment towards environmental issues or sustainable agriculture? And I think what we've observed more generally about uh, buying green or demanding green is that they're clearly, uh, especially in advanced economies, um, market demand by a segment of the population who who values this – but the challenge, of course, is how do you get some of these demands to spread widespread across the consumer base? Um, perhaps you shop at, at Whole Foods and feel very good about, you know, the, the food you're buying, and that's wonderful. But there's a large portion of the, the population in the United States, for example, who Whole Foods is too expensive for them. Mm-hmm. And so when we think more broadly, you know, what might drive consumer sentiment? I think historically, we can look at one of the big drivers is health and wellness, especially as it relates to things like your children, right? So if there's a threat that this might be bad for your children, you can see consumer sentiment very quickly shift away. Um, but if it's just more broadly for climate change or for environmental reasons, I, I think we just have to be a little bit uh, uh, cautious of thinking there's going to be some kind of just grand upswell of interest in, in purchasing and paying maybe premiums for uh, sustainable uh, food.
0: Yeah, and let's talk about cost and taste right? because that comes into play as well. And I think recently we saw in the news with the Impossible Burger, a plant-based alternative to meat. Uh, there was a pilot Burger King ran in St. Louis. It went so well the first month that they're now planning to roll it out nationwide by the end of the year. Um, and I think what's uh, differentiating that product is taste. You know, people say that it tastes just like meat. So for folks like, I would say I'm a flexitarian. (laughs) I'm interested in, in shifting. Uh, taste has been an issue in the past with ve- veggie burgers, and um, I think this starts to speak to um, those types of of customers
1: yeah and I think you know consumer demand is a lot like uh, in, in food is a lot like fashion right it 's often hard to predict where people will go in terms of what's uh, the types of flavors and the things they like uh, the, the The downside, if you will from a sustainability standpoint or at least the scary thing is. What we've historically observed is that as people have more disposable income, uh, as they move up maybe to the middle class, uh, they start to favor a more protein-rich diet, right. which often does translate into beef and chicken and, and dairy and the like. Uh, does it have to be that way? Absolutely not. Uh, and one could imagine that suddenly you know we favor uh, certain certain products versus others. I I recall myself growing up with a, a mother who would always have you know f- whole milk, four percent you know milk fat, mm-hmm. and and then training. Myself to like skim milk, uh, and 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 now you know whole milk was just taste terrible. You know, so to what extent would people start to to find that you know the Impossible mm-hmm. Burger is just a better tasting than a uh, you know your your old fashioned Whopper? Um,
0: right, and to your point about. Um Increasing income and eating more meat. I think we're starting to see that in developing countries, where um, it's great that we're starting to shift and entertain other uh, protein alternatives in this country and other developed countries. But in developing countries, with that rise in income, their interest in meat and dairy um, products—you know—they may not have access to some of the alternatives that we're talking about in this country, um, that's going to continue to drive demand.
1: No, absolutely. And and that's why I think it's important to think about demand and how we can shift demand. Uh, But I think we have to think about the supply side as well, if we're going to really achieve decarbonization by 2060
0: hmm. Mm-hmm. And can we get those alternatives to those developing countries and try to address that increase in demand in those products
1: at a right? price point at yeah, a yeah. price point? Exactly.
0: Right. right. $300,000 uh, clean meat burger is not going to fly in this country or elsewhere.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So another thing that we're seeing uh, in this industry is some significant disruption in terms of the types of players that are entering. Uh, lots of technology companies, startups, investors are very interested in this space, um, and it's largely around digital solutions. Um, the ag industry is the last big sector to step into the digital world, really, and um, it's, it's offering a lot of opportunities, but also a lot of disruption and excitement. But confusion and I think this is a a, a very diverse sector. You've got the small farmer who um, may not be ready for these solutions. Um, but again, a lot of disruption. Happening, and it seems like you know hallmark to uh, disrupting in industries that we've seen in, in other industries. Can you talk to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we're seeing this this pressure for digital transformation really across all sectors. So it's not surprising that you know eventually agriculture is also feeling that same disruptive potential here. Um, as you said, a lot of this is around uh, information and how you more uh, efficiently uh, grow and harvest crops by leveraging digital technologies that help predict weather or so- uh, soil utilization and the like, uh, maybe s- uh, improve the supply chain so you have less spoilage. Um, so th- these are really exciting things because, again, these are going to help improve the overall efficiency of our uh, of our agricultural industry, and that should have some benefits as well for for climate change. Um, I think with a lot of disruptions, we're going to see a lot of entry. We're going to see a lot of uh, startups entering the space. We're going to see a lot of incumbent firms who maybe have been in this sector more broadly um, that will will start you know providing solutions as well. Uh, I think all of this is is very positive for for innovation. Um, I would observe you know what's kind of interesting is a lot of it's probably more on the supply side in terms. Of of supplying those who grow things, right? Um, and so will it lead to a, a, a larger disruption of the actual growers of, of food? Uh, harder to say. Um, probably the one that most starts to lead to that are things like vertical farming and the potential uh, for you know creating these indoor environments, uh, uh, hydroponic fi- uh, um, agriculture and the like, that are going to use uh, really quite different approaches uh, to agriculture. Um, that might be where we'll start to see even disruption in the, um, you know, in the growing side of the business.
0: Yeah. And in terms of adoption of these technologies with the traditional farmer, um, I think we're starting to see some interesting partnerships uh, happen between companies, ag companies, biotech companies, tech companies, um, because these market entrants don't necessarily know how, what farmers need or how farmers think. Yeah. Um, a lot of farmers are using some level of digital technologies, but it may not mesh with what they're selling, trying to sell them. And so I think that's a really interesting piece too, or these industries coming together, realizing that they don't know everything and they need outside help with start some startups or, or, or other types of, uh, um, industry expertise to really bring, um, a solution to a, a farmer.
1: And this is a common pattern we're seeing, especially with with digital technology. Right? you your prototypical, you know, uh, computer scientist, maybe out in Silicon Valley, sees an opportunity and kind of enters into that realm. But they might not have much expertise or much experience at all in the actually underlying industry sector. Um, we talk a lot about now what we call open innovation, this idea that innovations really emerge out of the broad set of network of um, of linkages uh, between established businesses, entrepreneurial entrants, uh, universities and the research laboratories, supply chain, all, you know, all through the supply chain. And I think that's definitely going to play out here as well. It, it isn't going to be two people. People coming from their garage completely outside this industry that just alone transform it, it it's really gonna have to be this exchange um, between these various types of stakeholders yeah and
0: there was a lot of discussion about open innovation as these technologies come to market at the uh, world ag tech mm-hmm. uh, summit that I went to in San Francisco in March so I think that that's right um, now we we can't talk about decarbonization without at least touching on carbon capture and um, of course, there have been efforts to incentivize carbon capture uh, across various sectors. Uh, there's some early efforts uh, to also try to provide incentives to farmers to better manage their active lands, but also lands that they're no longer using by planting forests and doing other things to try to create carbon sinks. Uh, but it hasn't really been successful yet in across any of these industries, I would argue, and So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah,
1: I think, you know, in in some ways, this is what gives me hope with agriculture as a sector uh, and decarbonization, because... It is one that has naturally carbon sinks. Um, so the process of growing can can consume carbon. Um, so that creates, I think, some unique opportunities compared to other industries we've talked about, like steel production and, and the like. Um, with that said, in the same argument for why like carbon capture in uh in steel production or or coal and the like really requires an external incentive right because if there's a cost associated with engaging in these activities and there's not a direct um production benefit uh the economic motivations just aren't there and so you need some type of either cap and trade system or really just some price on carbon to incentivize that, now agriculture is a little bit different in that there are some productivity gains and the like around soil management and the like that uh, farmers might be incentivized, kind of internally, to begin to think about creating carbon sinks, independent of there being a price on carbon. Uh, but clearly, putting a price on carbon would really help um, drive a lot of this, a uh, lot of this behavior in terms of creating, you know, either growing additional forests or creating carbon sinks, like doing planting. Between uh, the crops you're trying to yield, um, so a, a price signal would definitely be a big help in that in that regard.
0: Yeah, and the uh, the 2018 Farm Bill that was signed actually includes some level of incentives, not necessarily a price on carbon, but some level of incentives for for uh, conservation yeah. of land, uh, advanced grazing management practices, other best pra- soil management best practices. Um, and, and so it'll be interesting to see this this carbon farming approach, which is being looked at, not surprisingly, in California yeah. uh, and the EU, where there are already efforts underway overall to do carbon trading and cap and trade.
1: I could imagine too that we'll, uh, we have seen and we'll probably continue to see the emergence of kind of private markets for, um, carbon offsets. Um, so this could be, for example, the University of Virginia wanting to offset some of our carbon emissions by engaging in projects that create create carbon sinks or uh, an Amazon or any number of the tech companies have been doing this with their data centers and the like. Um, So those might create internal markets. The the big challenge there is the standardization, right? Like understanding, is this an additive uh, activity? And, and then how do we then measure that kind of carbon offset that is being created by these projects? And again, there have been efforts along these lines going back decades at this point, um, but it still remains rather uh, at the margins, I would say. Um, and so this is where even a standard setting process about how we actually measure and confirm additive changes to create carbon sinks could be really helpful here so that places like universities or corporations have an easier way to kind of buy uh, carbon offsets.
0: Right, and I think there are efforts uh, in California by uh, EDF and some other nonprofits that are, are coming together to, to try to develop those standards and uh, provide that, that opportunity to, to corporations. So let's talk about moonshots. Yeah. My favorite thing to talk about. Um, while I was at AgTech. Uh, in March Astro Teller from Google X suggested that this industry needed a moonshot Um, but I think this is something that we've talked a lot about Uh, the Jefferson Innovation Summit policy playbook one of the actions we had in there was create a moonshot Uh, are we at the point we were able to look back across all four sectors now you and I have uh, researched uh, transportation energy industrials and now agriculture uh, do we need not just a moonshot within an industry, but a cross-industry moonshot at this
1: point? Yeah, either you could call it one big moonshot or we <laughs> need like multiple moonshots here. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the idea at the end of the day, we, we use that term maybe loosely, but I think there's some real important attributes to it. Uh, first is setting a very clear, simple, but in very ambitious goal, right? So the original moonshot, like we're going to send a man to the moon within the decade, right? very clear time frame very clear outcome that was being aimed for um so if it's you know 100% renewable energy or 100% electric vehicles you know a real clear target uh, that's a stretch target of course you know that's that's also the you know an important part of this but then the other part that i think is equally important is then what resources do we bring to bear to achieve that goal and especially uh, within these market environments, who's responsible, right? Who's the one who's actually, you know, monitoring this? Um, you know, uh, the logical candidate in many cases would be either like the federal government in the U.S. or government in another country who really sets an aggressive target. Um, could there be global efforts to set a moonshot? Perhaps, uh, um hard to see how we then resolve the resource allocation question of, you know, where resources come from and who allocates uh, where. Um, What I think makes this particular set of sectors interesting is there's also a story here about um, job creation, economic growth, and creating the industries of the future. Um, And a little bit of the kind of comparative uh, competition between countries to kind of lead the economies of the future and the technology of the future might give more private, not private incentives, but uh, national incentives to try to take these moonshots. Now, another alternative people have talked about is could you see private sector players get together and try to create some of these moonshots? And and you see this in some of the uh, X prizes and the like that have been created, or even Google, you know, with their Google X lab trying to to identify a few of these. Uh, And again, to the extent that all of these things we've been talking about, there are market opportunities here that create valuation for those uh, efforts that get create um, a return on your investment, uh, there, there might be some opportunities in the, the private sector. The reason that it becomes difficult, of course, is just the scale. You know, the the, the uh, amount of resources that it would take to do some of these things we were just mentioning are, are huge, and it's not clear an individual, let's say corporation, would ever internalize all of the uh, benefits of those efforts to incentivize them to invest. Um, so I think at the end of the day, if we're, we're serious about moonshots, they've got to be a concerted effort between both the private sector and the public sector, uh, at the very least at the nation state level, if not the international level, um, to, to be meaningful.
0: And I feel like we are seeing some level of that yeah. at the state level and, and corporate level in lieu of leadership, yeah. uh, at least within this country. So in the short term, it might be a little bit of a patchwork of moonshots yeah. that, that keep us moving forward until we can come together as a as a planet to to address those concerns
1: exactly and i think you know the exciting thing and i I think this is you know demonstrates the power of markets is like if you come up with a let's say a low-cost technology that's uh, carbon-free for generating electricity let's say solar like and it it truly is the low-cost alternative it will diffuse quickly, right? We we don't need the world to come together to do that. We just need some really smart people to figure this out, and then it should quickly diffuse. Um, the question, of course, is uh, you know how much uh, innovation, how much investment in R and D and the like is needed to start to bring about those changes? And it's not to underestimate again the whole ecosystem of kind of institutional changes that might need to take place to make some of these technologies diffuse you know throughout the world.
0: And of course, the big question that I ask at the end of every podcast, and you gave a great lead there, is: Can we do it in time? You know, can mm-hmm. we bring these uh, new innovations and ideas and shift behaviors? I would say by 2060, but now it might. The deadline has been shifted to 2050. It seems <laughs> by the IPCC. Yeah. Can we do it in time? And what, what's needed to accelerate?
1: Well, as we've talked before, you know, I'm an optimist by nature, so I, I'm not willing to concede defeat. Uh, it is a tall order, as we've seen as we've gone through these different sectors. Uh, there are certain sectors, as we've talked about, automobiles, transportation more broadly, where I'm, I'm more optimistic uh, that that we're on a good trajectory. I think energy generation, electrification uh, through renewables uh, is also on a good trajectory, though there's still a lot of barriers there. There are other sectors, as we've talked about, like industrials, where it is it is very hard to see how we get there without some policy intervention like putting a price on carbon uh, agriculture is at one level. Again, an interesting one because of the carbon sinks and the ability to actually even be a net um, uh, negative uh, carbon producer, if you will, but. Uh, However, it also is a complicated one because it is a very diffuse industry, right? Uh, this isn't like uh, the auto industry where there's roughly you know twenty or so major manufacturers of automobiles throughout the world. You know, here we're talking literally thousands and thousands of producers spread out through the world, everything from large agriculture companies to small, you know, family farms. Uh, and they all have an impact and they all play a role here. Um, so I, I think it's a sector that if it is gonna hit a twenty fifty or twenty sixty goal, again, it's gonna take some concerted policy interventions to to help move the industry, uh move the industry along.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a sector that uh, will benefit the most from its own actions to address climate yeah. change more than any other sector. I saw an interesting uh, data point and I may not get it completely right, but something like 80% of the food produced around the world is by small farms, yeah. small to medium farms. So we can't forget about the small farmer and how do you reach that small farmer yeah. with with some of these technologies or best practices
1: exactly exactly and again you know as as much as like digital technology helping create efficiencies in farms is a really positive development is that going to lead to decarbonization well hard you know hard to see uh and and again as we started a lot of this is about what we demand as consumers for the food products um uh, uh population continues to grow So, demand for food by, you know, by necessity will continue to grow. So, we need to get more efficient in our production of food, Um, but again, it all being equal, if we don't make changes, we will see increased increases in carbon emissions from food. Um, if all stays equal. So we really need some fundamental, not just shifts in technology, we really shifts in behavior. And uh, again, as we started, that, that's a hard one for me to get my hands around of how, you know, how do we get the world to stop consuming beef? And, and, and I say this as someone who, who does enjoy a good, you know, steak every <laughs> once in a while. Uh, and, and, and so those are, those are really tricky problems to try to, try to solve.
0: Yeah, and I think um, education is key. Um, y- y- changing consumers how they view food, where you know where it comes from, what it's made of. I think some exciting, there's some exciting science happening in agriculture right now and research around gene editing, clean meat. But these are things that make people nervous. But they are actually things that need to happen. And and there are tremendous benefits to this science that need to happen to bring healthier, more nutritious food to more people. And so I think educating the consumer, Uh, About the importance of this and making it less scary, Mm -hmm. uh, changing how they view food is important too.
1: I totally agree. Totally agree.
0: So one more thing, um, and this is one uh, term that comes up a lot in this industry, and you know, once a while we 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 discuss it here is adaptation. (laughs) I mean, I think agriculture is is an industry that thinks about adaptation. They have to think about adaptation, seed adaptation. you know, protecting their, their commodities. And, uh, you know, maybe that's our next area that we're going to look at innovation and adaptation. But I think at this point, we need to start thinking about new technologies or, or new adaptation approaches moving forward.
1: I, I agree. I mean, I think, uh, again, I'm an optimist by nature, but if you just look at the current trends, we, even, even if we achieve two degrees Celsius, uh, that will likely require some adaptation, even in that world, right? Um, and if we go sailing by that, it's going to require far more adaptation. Um, with that said... Uh, you know, sometimes you hear the argument like, "Well, we just should give up on mitigation, right? Because it's it's not going to happen. Let's just focus all our attention on adaptation." And and as we've said many times on this podcast, you know, we're not climate scientists, uh, so we're relying on the work of others here. Uh, but from what I've read, you know, there, there there's kind of nonlinear impacts here that if we go sailing by two degrees. Things get, you know, much worse. Right. So um, even in a world where we have to adapt to the effects of climate change, it is still prudent for us to try to mitigate the impacts of climate change. And so I I don't think we can escape it. Right. We can't escape uh, the uh, the need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and our carbon footprint, um, even if. We're not able to achieve the goals, you know, as a society, we've we've set out for ourselves. So again, adaptation is going to be necessary, um, but mitigation still, to me, is paramount um, as we move forward.
0: Yeah, a mix of the two. Yeah. So, well, thanks for joining us, Mike.
1: As always, it's always a pleasure, Becky, to be with you.
0: More information on the decarbonization of the agriculture sector can be found in our report titled "Path to 2060." decarbonizing the agriculture industry available on the business innovation and climate change initiative website at www.darden.virginia.edu forward slash innovation hyphen climate this is becky duff for research and relevance at darden